Hello and welcome to episode 36 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray in the hot seat to guide proceedings as professional golf returns to our TV screens and the Twitter hot takes become almost unbearable. Welcome back, PGA Tour, and all the nonsense that that entails. As fans of the game, we'll all be inundated by the endless hot takes and analysis in the coming days, but not on the Good Good Podcast, because here we look for and find always something else to talk about. For the past couple of weeks, it's been pretty heavy going here, lots of discussion about public golf, the state of the game, but this week we're going to switch gears, get back to our roots a little bit with some good old-fashioned chat about golf course architecture. Uh, many of you will be, will be familiar with the name Morecambe in golf, but if you're like me, familiarity ends with knowing the names of Mick and Vern and some of their ties to Royal Melbourne. Prepare for all that to change today because shortly we'll be joined by Toby coming to learn more about this extraordinary father and son team whose contribution to the game in Australia is at least as influential as anybody else. Before we meet Toby, however, let me introduce my regular co-host, fellow golf nerd Adrian Logue. Adrian, welcome. Uh, be good to talk about some golf course architecture today, but there's also good news about the Good Good Book Club. Indeed. Tell people if they missed it during the week, the big announcement. Uh, we're ready to do our next Good Good Golf Podcast book club. We're doing The Match by Mark Frost, um, a much-requested book for the book club. And uh, I made a bit of an announcement about that on Twitter the other day and got quite a good reaction. A lot of people seem to love that book. And uh, we've got about two weeks or two and a half weeks to get reading. Um, we're going to record at the end of this month, uh, sort of, or the start of July. I'm not sure which, but um, so you've got about two and a half weeks to, to get reading and be familiar with the book before we record and publish you, that episode. Derek Duncan from Feed the Ball as host, which I thought worked fantastically last time. You did the World Atlas of Golf and Lucas Michel. Lucas current- Michel, which is I think is a great choice for this book in mm-hmm. particular. Lucas being sort of right on the precipice between top amateur and a career as a professional golfer. Um, I think there's certain personal parallels with Lucas and a couple of the characters from the match. So... Uh, uh, hopefully, it'll all end a lot better for Lucas than it does for <laughs> some of the characters in the match. Mark Guy and a great thinker about the game too. Luke. Really is, yeah, so yeah, it'll be really good to get multi-talented uh, individual Which and Mike Clayton and uh, lots of other things. I hosted does. a panel discussion with Lucas uh, around about the Presidents Cup actually at Yarra, Yarra and uh, a fantastic and intriguing young mind. So it'll he be does a lot of stuff and he makes it all look easy. To he do. does, which it's is annoying, a little bit annoying. He's, exactly. a, he's one of those. He's a polymath, I think they call that. Yes, lots of people looking forward to that, including me. I found my copy of the book quite by accident yesterday whilst doing some cleaning up around the office in here. I've been shifting offices and whatnot. So I was going to read it again yep. till you lobbed in this morning and said, oh, the match, good, I'll take that. I've because taken you've it. only had the audio book. I've had the audio book and I've been listening to it a few times, but it's hard to annotate your, your thoughts and stuff as you're going through the audio book. So uh, I've, I've borrow this. Thanks, so thanks very much, of, Mine will be The margins will be full of uh, notes in pen or pencil or something when I get exactly. back in the yep. next it'll uh, be couple of weeks. hideously disfigured. Fantastic. Looking forward to that. It'll be, it'll be a collector's item. Actually, it belongs to Bill Colquhoun. <laughs> I'm just having a look inside the back It cover. does not belong to Bill Colquhoun. It's in my office, which means it belongs to me. <laughs> so, so, there you right. go. The match doing that. Lots of people looking forward to that. Uh, uh, so, get reading ASAP, the book club, in a couple of weeks' time. Derek Duncan, Lucas Michelle. And Adrian Logue. Let's move on. As I mentioned in the opening, I'm somewhat embarrassed to admit that my knowledge of Mick and Vern Morecambe extends very little beyond them being responsible for the construction of Alistair McKenzie's plans at Royal Melbourne. But that does this father-son team no justice at all. So to correct this gaping hole in my knowledge, I thought I'd reach out to author and historian Toby Cumming, who Mike Clayton reliably informs me is the man to consult on this topic. Toby, that's a big rap from Clayton. He's not prone to exaggeration, so no doubt well earned. Thanks for taking some time this morning. Looking forward to chatting. G'day, Rod. Hi, Adrian. G'day, Have you read the match? I haven't, no. Well, you better get oh, reading. Get, You've got get a couple of weeks. Yep. <laughs> Love the idea of a book club, though. Yep. Uh, we've, funnily enough, we've had a bunch of different ideas about the pod. We started with the iSeek podcast, and then we switched to the good, good one last year. The book club, I think, is the biggest win of an idea that we've had. Yeah. Don't you reckon? Well, it was my idea, so. Yeah. yeah it was- when I said we, yep. I was sort of. Are we going to split it now? Is there going to be a list of your ideas sure. and my ideas? Oh, you need a you've break. Got, you've got so. the book club. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, it's good. They actually are really good fun, and it, it's amazing to think that it could be entertaining to listen to people talk about a book, but it actually is. So get reading on that, Toby. As I said, Toby, uh, great to have you aboard. Your Twitter handle says everything you ever wanted to know about the golf courses that Vern Morecambe designed. So let's start there because Mick and Vern, father and son, well, let's start a little bit back from there. Why Vern Morecambe for you? And for those not familiar, quick thumbnail sketch of who Mick and Vern Morecambe are, perhaps, to start. So so why Vern, for me, I think, started 
I've played at Anglesey since I was about 12 or 13. It's where I started playing and I, I knew Vern designed Anglesey. It was in the back of my mind somewhere. Uh, and then I, a few years ago now, maybe four years ago, I went and played Lee and Gather just because I was in Inverloch for the weekend and I'd never played there and didn't have high hopes and I was just blown away. It was amazing. And they they hold their Morecambe history pretty close to their heart at Leangatha and so there was some memorabilia up in the golf course uh, in the clubhouse. And I just I remember thinking, man, if so there's Anglesey, there's Leangatha, both of which I like. How how many more of these are there out there? And sent me down the rabbit hole and I never really intended to do it, but here we are. Looked into Vern, and the <laughs> the end of the string was a long, long way from the start of the string. So, yeah, uh, yeah, four years later, here we are. For those not familiar, we're talking about sort of regional Victorian courses there, aren't we? Anglesey and Lee and Gather. They're not sort of Melbourne CBD like Royal Melbourne is. They're sort of more the fringes of the city and a little bit further beyond. Yeah, that's right. Um, and he did. I mean, he did a lot of courses in towns. He did a lot in Melbourne, a lot in Adelaide, you know, Hobart, but. Probably what it, I mean, where he bulked out his resume uh, up to the 90 courses that it is was going out on weekends. I mean, he had a, he was greenkeeper at Kingston Heath. He had a full time job, but he would, in his spare time, head out on the train, often on a Friday night, get back on a Sunday night, lay out these courses, sometimes never going back, just a one weekend thing. <clears throat> and, uh, and yeah, that's how he, I guess, designed so many with all his Kingston Heath responsibilities as well. Uh, very, there's something very Donald Ross about that, yeah. isn't there? Yeah. Uh, right down to the train, catching the train out to the place and then coming exactly. on Exactly, and only spending a day or two <laughs> day at the place. Leaving, leaving some plans. Staking it out. Uh, and No doubt he would have had the opportunity. I mean, Victoria's not a huge state. He would have had the opportunity to come and revisit some of those places uh, after they were constructed, I, I presume. Is no, it? We might Abs- come to that absolutely. All- some of them he did. Okay. Yep. We'll but come a back lot to that he- and, and get some of his thoughts on that. I want to quickly go back to Mick Morecambe because I suspect mm. most of us have heard the name Mick Morecambe more than Vern Morecambe and we hear about it in relation to Royal Melbourne. It sounds like that reputation sort of overshadows what was a somewhat more productive career of his son Vern. Yeah, it depends how you look at productive, I guess. I mean, Mick was integral in the shaping of several of those amazing sandbelt layouts that we know today, and particularly Royal Melbourne West. I mean, Vern, Mick got that job in 1905. So Vern was born in 1900. So Vern was five when they moved into, you know, Bo Morris there with a house owned by Royal Melbourne backing onto the course, essentially. So he grew up on the fairways and Mick turned that Sandringham course into a great course, and then Mackenzie shows up in 1926, and he plans it. Mick builds it; it becomes, you know, world's best. Um, but all the while, you know, Vern, Vern was you know, 26 when Mackenzie's wandering these fairways. Vern was there, looking at Mackenzie's plans, talking to him about his ideas for the new Royal Melbourne West. So, I uh, Mick built it, and famously, you know did that wonderful shaping, but Vern was right there as well. And then when he went to Kingston Heath, that was through his dad as well. That was Mick doing it until he said, actually, I'm a bit busy over at Royal Melbourne. Do you think you could take my son for this? And then, you know, Vern built the Kingston Heath bunkers and the rest is history there. What a what a sort of a dynasty. I'm reminded as you speak there, Toby, that one of the positions we undervalue completely in this game and continue to undervalue to this day is that of the greenkeeper slash course superintendent and their role in the presentation of golf courses. Mackenzie famously, we well, barely had a word for Royal Melbourne in the spirit of St Andrews. Did he? I mm-hmm. think it was less than three lines, yep. but, which and we revere it as one of the great golf courses. So, in many ways, and I think Mike Clayton has written this, whilst the name of the designer always appears on the course, there's a whole bunch of other people responsible. And I think in the case of Royal Melbourne, you could say Mick Morecambe, as much as anybody, responsible for what we have there. I, I absolutely agree, and I actually think Australia's bad at honouring its designers too. I mean, it's, it's certainly big in the US, but uh, Australia hasn't been always good at that. Maybe we concentrate a bit more on the architect now, but certainly the if they're uh, international, Toby. If they come from overseas, <laughs> we do, but we're not. We're not. Oh, there's a little bit of a cringe factor, you know, there, a bit of cultural cringe, perhaps. Still, fifty years time, we could be having a podcast about honouring Ross Watson. You never know. That's <laughs> please continue. 
I may even edit that out. I don't often edit, but I'm, for your sake, Adrian, I may even edit that out, which is not to be critical of Ross, but I don't think anybody would suggest his work is the – but we, we may well about Mike Cocking. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Lucas Michelle, he's yeah. going to do the book club. Who knows what we might emerge? But it, it is interesting that we – now, I remember this was just the other week. Who were we talking to? Somebody was talking about Royal Sydney and why they wanted to get Gil Hands to do their redesign. And part of that thinking was, well, Doak did Concord – so to show that we're competitive in the international marketplace, we need to get a big-name international designer to come in and do Royal Sydney, yep. which is an extraordinary way to go about looking after your, your Carl, asset, isn't Carl, it? Carl Franz so, coming into Eleonora. Yeah, well. all those sorts of things. Yep. So there is certainly a little bit of that. Let's go back, uh, enough about Mick. Let's go back to Vern Walken because that's sort of your area especially. I'm intrigued that a round of golf at a regional golf course could end up becoming a book. What was your interest in sort of golf and architecture prior to that? Were you already – did you already have a bit of the sickness, or did this come upon you oh, during this no, round at Lang? I I, if I'm if I'm honest, I think I was born with the sickness. Uh-huh. I, <laughs> um, yeah, so I played as a kid. I don't know how I got the sickness. Actually, really, no one in my family played, but at some point, I walked onto a golf course and fell in love with it. And it's like COVID, Tony, community spread. We don't <laughs> always know who the carrier is, but but we've caught it from somebody. No, that's right. Um, and so, yeah, I was drawing golf holes when I was, you know, 13 on the back of my school books. Um, but I think it, it really was and, – and I played sort of reasonable – like I played a bit of junior pen and I played – I did a PhD over in England and I played uh, for Cambridge Uni when I was over there and I guess got back into golf uh, in in a bigger way, sort of in my younger 20s then. And, and there I was exposed to all of the British – you know, brilliant British courses, really, uh, which sparked a bit of an interest in architecture. But this was never like a cunning plan. I, j- I just came across the Vern story and I'd, I tried to find information out. I, tr- I looked up books and, you know, John Scarth in Around Forever wrote a book about the Morecambs back in 2000. And to my knowledge, that's really the only thing that exists on the matter. And, and in terms of Vern's courses, he listed quite a few of them, but often only sort of one sentence about them. And I was like, someone needs to look at this in some more detail. And, you know, I had a bit of spare time, so that person was me. You were an author waiting for a book to find you by the sound of it, to be honest with you. Well, research is my day job. Research is my game. So it it probably is more of a, you know, it's much more of a detailed history where I went to libraries, I looked through reference lists massively long, I followed up leads, then – you know, any kind of novel. It sort of is a research history more than anything. Mm, yeah, indeed. Uh, I want to talk about perhaps the impact that people don't realise that Vern Morgan might have had. Give us a bit of a thumbnail sketch of some of the courses that you're talking about. Some of the listeners might be familiar with them. And then we might sort of talk about – I know Jeff Ogilvie's spoken about this in the past, as has Clates. Growing up in Melbourne, you don't realise what you've got till you go away and play professional golf and suddenly realise these courses are rubbish. <laughs> you're used to the courses of the Melbourne Sandbelt and suddenly discover that, in fact, the rest of the world's courses are rubbish compared to this. I suspect there'll be an aspect to that of some of these regional courses that you're going to tell us about. But give us a thumbnail sketch of some of the ones that people might know that Vern Morecambe designed. That that was what got me in, partly not being able to imagine how some of these little towns, towns of 500,000 people, can service a well-conditioned 18-hole golf course and keep it in amazing, like immaculate condition. Uh, but yeah, and, and that's what I loved about the research. You'd read, Vern would say something, tell Warwick Nabil, say that he wanted the Greens to be like this back when he did the work there in, you know, the late 1950s. And you play it now and you can see that bunker shaping on the 10th hasn't changed. It's just just like he wanted it. So it's more than a history. You can go and, go and play Actually, it and see it so now. I can feel it. It's a very real thing. It's testament to the... Which we don't always get the various committees and those who've been in charge of those golf courses for all that time too, is it not, Toby? Absolutely, and just the volunteer mindset of lots of these little courses, little towns that get through. On you know, there's maybe one paid member of the green staff, and everyone else is just bringing their tractor from the farm to mow the fairways or you know pitching in somehow. Uh, but yeah, just to give you a bit of a sketch, a few of my um, the ones that I think of when I think of these regional courses that Vern did that 
I, people should go and play because they're spectacular and I want to see them survive. A lot of these country regional places where farms are all uh, used to be 100 farms. Now there's three big ones uh, struggling a little bit. But uh, Border Town, on which doesn't get a lot of play just on the Where's way to Adelaide there. Adelaide. Okay. Ah, yeah, so okay. it's right by the border. But if, you, if you're driving between Melbourne and Adelaide, definitely stop off at Border Town. It's a great little course um, and surprisingly undulating for massive flat uh, farming area, but loved Border Town. Warwick and Beale's great. Uh, all through Gippsland, so Trafalgar, uh, Trelgan, Lee and Gatha, quality Vern layouts, um, Western District as well, sort of Anglesey, Torquay, Kerr Lewis on the way to the Western District. And there's a few great sort of um, sand scrape courses that are still down there. Balmoral's a classic. Haywood's grass greens now, but no bunkers. You can tell that it used to be sand scrape and Haywood's a great layout. So, so yeah, all around the state, really. Mm. I want to come to you on this, Adrian, because you sort of grew up regionally and your first experiences of golf were regional. Does anything that Toby's talking about there resonate with you, this notion of – I sometimes wonder whether the lack of a budget at places like Toby's Island is actually a blessing in disguise because with yep. money, the most likely no, thing to happen is people that. spend it buggering up the golf course. Yeah, and, and you get the natural degradation of some of these places where the bunkers turn into little round discs and the greens get – turn into little round discs and the whole thing loses a bunch of character. Um, but, of course, you know, that, that has just enough money to maintain those elements without actually redoing the whole course tends to work out pretty well um, somehow. But in regional New South Wales, of course, we didn't we didn't have a Vern Morecambe going around. We had um, you know, Eric Appley and Dan Souter and, and those sort of guys seem to have a hand in every course in New South Wales, basically. Um but uh, yeah, there's very few great examples of architecture in in uh, in New South Wales, country New South Wales, um, by comparison. Um, like I was lucky enough to play a lot of golf at Newcastle Golf Club when I was a kid, Just and that that really sparked an interest in this stuff yeah. to me. Um, but prior to that, you know, I played all at Maitland for years and years, and Maitland's a good country golf course, nice big open area, and a lot of fun. Um, but uh, there's nothing. It just lacks that intent, and I, I think there is that that thing that people see in a golf course when they when they see that it has the hand of an architect applied to it. There's a certain intent that that wait, awakens something in people. They say, "Oh, that, that's there for a reason," it, and it can be a combination of things. It can be something that sneaks up on you because it's it initially appears as just a natural part of the land, mm. but if it's done well, in fact, if it's, it's done most well, likely, exactly. But sort of starting point. But the intent comes through, I think. Yeah. And Toby, does that make sense to you? What what Adrian's talking about there, and and Vern said the same thing. So uh, th- this is what really fascinated me about the story is that he had golden age architects in his head when he's going out to these regional towns. I mean, that's he's imagining what Mackenzie was saying when he met him as a twenty six year old, I think, and probably what his dad drummed into him as well. And like Liam Gather, for example, when he did that, he said, "This is going to cost you no more than." bad shaping around the greens like good shaping doesn't cost more than bad shaping you've just got to know how to, you've just got to know how to do it and if you go to lee and gather now the shaping around those greens is just magnificent like sure there's a few not so good drives on that course but you just take the the green complexes at a course where you go and pay 25 30 there's probably no one else there it's just i i just can't believe that exists i'm glad it exists and I think people should go and go and enjoy it. Indeed. What are the hallmarks of a Morecambe course? If I took you to a golf course that was designed by Vern Morecambe, you'd never heard of it, you didn't know, would you be able to pick it? Would you be able to say, that's a Morecambe? And what are those I, things? I always think people overrate their uh, ability in a double blind. Like if you drop me in the, from the middle of nowhere in a plane and drop me in a course, probably I would With a parachute, struggle. I hope. No, we're, <laughs> we're not going to just push you out. <laughs> thanks, thanks, I appreciate it. I'd struggle to say, yes, it is, no, it's not. Uh, but that said, you know, I've been to probably, I've played 70 or so of the 90 that I talk about in the book, uh, and some of them don't exist anymore, so it's a fair percentage. Uh, and, yeah, there's. I'll give you two hallmarks. One is the shaping around the greens. I mean, he was a he was a bunker whiz, and you can't always tell 
what's been changed, what hasn't. But a lot of the, um, yeah, particularly the country courses that don't have heaps of money to pump into it, you can see that this is just original. Anglesey's got a couple of classics that I'm sure are very much original, bunkers around the greens. Big bunkers, uh, deep bunkers, Royal Melbourne type bunkers. What's the what's the thing? Very much, very much sandbelt style, but always he was big on um, gradual slope because he was a greenkeeper. He knew that you don't want slopes you can't mow, uh, and so he was very practical like that, like that too in his shaping. Um, so the the tongues of the rough that would creep down into the greens or, you know, the slopes around the greens would would always be gradual and natural looking, I would say. Uh, but, yeah, he loved it, loved a deep bunker with clean lines. Uh, and, and the other thing that he's known for is tee shots that weren't long enough, you know, sharp dog legs, uh, not far enough to the corner. Even back then, I don't think it's an excuse that the ball was flying less far then. Uh he just seemed to have a penchant for par fours that turned too early, uh, and particularly with tree growth over the years, quite a few of them have become a problem. So, you know, Spring Valley, for example, probably his most famous course, uh, which Doak talked about um, when he went there and loved, but said, you know, it's too many irons off the tee, basically. Yeah, he might have had something to do with Monash up here in Sydney as well. It's, it's got a lot of those oh, sort of... I see what you get. You're making yeah, a joke. Sorry, sure. I missed yep, that. That's right. Initially, who, who were the Morecams to Vern's McKenzie? And by that, I mean McKenzie left plans and off he went and Mick built Royal Melbourne, did the construction and brought those plans to life. Who did that for Vern, who went out on the train on a Friday night, laid the course out on a Saturday, Sunday, and came home, and as you said, quite often maybe didn't go back. Do we know anything about – because clearly from what you're saying, whoever did the construction has done it well because you can still see those elements today. Yeah, I think I think it was different in every town. It was whoever these, these golf courses had at hand, and often it was pretty rudimentary. You know, it was farm equipment to, to get it done. Um so it was, yeah, it was locals that were pitching in and they wanted a golf course to play and so they helped build it and I think they appreciated having a plan to work towards. Um, he was, I mean, he was very well thought of back in the day. Like Adrian was mentioning, there's, there weren't a lot of options. So, And I think this is why he did so many courses. In the 1950s, there was essentially Vern or Sloan Morpeth that have his, had his fingerprints on a few of these courses too. But other than that, there, there was just no... No one you'd even call an architect. Um, it was a very different time. So they, they would get Vern out and, yeah, they'd get who they could at their course, but no one in particular. I think that differed from town to town. I often wonder how he worked it all out. Like the Morecams obviously were, you know, they grew, Vern grew up on the golf course. Mick had already been maintaining a golf course and built a golf course before they encountered Mackenzie. So they were coming from a great practical base and then no doubt Mackenzie gave them his little book that he was giving to everybody when he was out here. And uh, but, uh, from that alone, they seem to have worked out how to do this thing in a completely unique way that uh, the rest of the world now looks upon as being um, instrumental and in this certain style uh, that we've established here in the, in the Sandbelt in particular. Uh, and Alex Russell obviously was a must have been an influence to them as well. But did they travel overseas at all, or you know, was was that their only influences, Alex Russell and and Mackenzie? And Mackenzie that's, obviously influenced Russell. So, yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. Actually, when Russell did Karen up over in Perth, um, he gave them the links by Robert Hunter. So he didn't give them uh, Mackenzie or Colt. In terms of books on the subject, he gave them Hunter, which is also quite a famous book, but I uh, might show his influence. Uh, the I know that Mick read uh, architecture books from the States. He's on that's on the record, and so presumably a bit of that filtered down to Vern as well. But it's it's a really good question where they got their uh, their exposure because Australia was by no means the centre of the golfing world at that time where they got their influences from. Uh, and I think probably for Mick it was more from the US uh, before Mackenzie showed up. And I don't once Mackenzie showed up, maybe he brought the Mackenzie cult um, spirit to their, you know, to their ideas, to their philosophies. 
Mm. Otherwise, they just worked it out on their own. But Quite possibly trying yeah, it out. It's probably a part of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hello, people, and apologies for the interruption, but, well, it's my podcast, and that's kind of how it goes sometimes. I hope you're enjoying our chat with Toby about Vern Morgan, but don't let it distract from the really important stuff. That is how you look when you go out to play golf. It's all very well to talk about Morecambe this and Mackenzie that, but unless you're shopping at thegolfsociety.com.au, you're simply not doing it right. The very best names in apparel, shoes and accessories, and all in the one convenient online location. Add to that a special discount off your first purchase for Talking Golf listeners, and it's hard to imagine a better deal. That's thegolfsociety.com.au forward slash golf. Get there today. Now, Back to Toby Cumming and the story of Vern Morecambe. Do we know, Toby, how Vern came to be sort of the go-to guy for a lot of these regional courses? Did he advertise? Did, did did he do one and then everyone said, that's good, we want him to do ours as well? Do we know how he became that sort of go-to guy? I imagine there were others who had their hat in the ring. And do we know why Mick didn't become that? Did he not want to, do we know, or was he not called upon? I think there was timing as well. So Mick died in the mid-30s. Uh-huh. Uh, so, uh, and everything shut down for the Second World War. So Mick just wasn't around for that boom. And there was a boom post-war where soldiers coming back, towns reviving, people started to want golf. So like, Government sending people to small towns to populate. and all that, that, that was part absolutely. of the repatriation, wasn't so, it? Soldier settlement scheme. So in the 1950s, there was just a lot of demand for courses to be built uh, and not many people to, that knew anything about designing them. So so Mick was gone by then uh, and it really was – Vern was the go-to guy. I'm not sure he advertised much at all. I've seen some evidence in some of his letters that it, it word of mouth happened. You know, you'd see he'd get passed on or people he knew from Kingston Heath and this is where they had their country house and uh, so they, they'd bring Vern in. Um, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure he needed to advertise much. He seems very busy. In the mid-50s, it was just shockingly busy. You know, 1956, I think he had six or seven full designs in 1956 alone. <laughs> well, while we have a day job at Kingston Heath. Exactly, plus so a few remodeling. Really he must have been a millionaire. By the, he must have been a millionaire by the time he designed 90 <laughs> golf courses. That's that was, oh, Well, uh, those did, architects didn't charge what they do yeah, now either. Uh, do we know how he did out of it financially? Yeah, I've got some really good information on um, on what he charged courses. It tend to be in the range for a full design. It would be something like fifty to a hundred pounds. He wasn't basically. kidding when he said good design costs <laughs> the, <laughs> the same as bad design. As bad design. <laughs> uh, in, in, indeed. So I guess we could probably say safely he's not doing it at least just for the money. He's clearly going all right as the, the head green keeper at Kingston Heath, and he's not charging a fortune to do it. Are there any writings from Vern, and what have you discovered in that sense? Did he talk much or write much about why he did the things he did and his thought processes on golf course design? Uh, yeah, we're really lucky he did lay that out. Not so much why he did what he did, but you can tell from his writing that he just loves it. It, was, it made me think of me as a teenager. You know, Every course he sees and every plot of land he sees, he sees a potential golf course on it. Even it's flat and clay and nothing. <laughs> He'll work something like, out. I'll give you a world-class course. You know, he was he was enthusiastic about it. Um, and we do have an insight into his philosophies himself because in 1938, so just before the Second World War, there was a bit of a um, – you know, Queensland and WA were trying to get into hosting the Australian Open and there was a bit of an arms race between Queensland and WA uh, and they had differing approaches to how to get into the rotor. But one of the things Queensland did was brought Vern on as like a their correspondent. So got, I think it was the Courier Mail, got him to write six articles, a series of six articles on golf course architecture and design. And so he laid out his principles. Here's how I like to root the holes. Here's what's important to think about with drainage. Here's how to build a bunker, Here's, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the sort of stuff you're not going to see in your daily paper at the moment. Um but but we do have very detailed yeah information on his philosophies because he laid it out in those articles in 1938. What a delightful rabbit hole to stumble yeah. across while studying Vern Morecambe, the politics of golf in Australia mm. in the 30s in in trying to get uh, was that successful? Did the well and then the, then World War Two happened sadly so oh, Queensland okay. and WA it was the, the war intervened and it wasn't till uh, was it 
oh, the early 50s, I think, that Karen Up hosted the Open. And so WA got it before Queensland. Um, but yeah, so it took a while, but it eventually happened. Yeah. An issue that we still have hmm. to this day. Adrian, I'm in listening to Toby talk about uh, Vernon, him writing about his thoughts on the game. There's a thread there through history, isn't there, of the of the great designers and those who really contributed to the game, putting pen to paper, which we still see today. Yep. I always think of Mike Clayton as as the guy, but Tom Doak has also been a prolific writer. Gil Hans has written plenty of things as well. There's a real tradition there, isn't there? I wonder what drives that. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like Mike Clayton sort of steps aside from his role as golf course architect when he writes about golf course architecture. Agreed, yeah. Uh, which I find fascinating. But Doak, of course, really established his name um, in, in a sense. He sort of became as an author. famous as an author mm. um, and uh, the very unique style to the way. But it's all, I, I've, in a lot of ways, I think podcasting is the documentation of that stuff it's now. It's writing, isn't it? Uh, if you ask most golf course architects what form of media they take part in, it's it's got to be podcasting. I think there's, uh, and, and where Derek Duncan's podcast is great is that, he structures those as a permanent record of yeah, very much. Uh, their evergreen sort of pieces of content that describe each of those architects. Um, They're like the feature story things. without writing the words. Exactly. And in fact, you could sit exactly. down with any of those interviews and write the feature story from them. You pretty much week. could. I feel like you can get a lot more content in a podcast in a short period of time, uh, and some of it may be rambling. Um, but it's it, one of the joys of it. It actually gets it out there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a great way to get a lot of content out very quickly and. Architects these way these days are expressing themselves that way. It's any creative person wants to wants an outlet like that, don't they? It's just needed, don't they? Just natural that I think they're, they're either going to write because you know it's it's formalising the thoughts for themselves as well. Mm. So yeah, as much as anything else, outside of Vernon, his own writings, Toby, was there much written about him by others? Did you find? No, this uh, this is what got me started. Hardly anything, and and I'd noticed that. You know, the club, the odd club would have something on their website about, oh, you know, designed by Vern Morecambe or this hole designed by Morecambe as if it was a good thing. Like, obviously, there was some quality, some value attached to that. Uh, but when I dug a bit deeper, you know, other than Scarth's book, I couldn't find anything written about them, really. The odd article, you know, Clates had written one or two articles about them, um, but but nothing nothing detailed on the history that, was, that really surprised me that there wasn't more so he would visit a regional area and do something but the local paper for example wouldn't necessarily note that Vern had visited town is that's a lot of the a lot of the information we have about the rosses and the tilling hasts and guys of that era are the local papers who say look mm. big name designer came to town and looked at the local golf course and they interview them and you get some thoughts on not even necessarily the course that they're working on there but their thoughts on design and some of the philosophies and things about it that's often where you come across but not so much for no, and I mean, it's amazing that the National Library has digitised uh, a lot of those archives in Trove now. So for someone like me that's interested in Morecambe history that can just tap, no, no microfiche anymore, just tap into the search engine on your computer and comes the local paper from the Horsham and Wimmera Times from 1925, uh, it's, it's very accessible, and no, I found a little bit, but didn't seem to be very much. So in that case, how difficult was your task then? Uh, I know you've sort of said it's really just sort of outlying what Morecambe did, but you obviously want more than just a list of these golf courses uh, as your sort of book. What did that mean for you as a researcher in trying to piece together? Because what we all want to know as people, ultimately the only thing interesting in the world is people. It doesn't matter what your preferred subject is, people are what's interesting. So you must be fascinated by this Vern Morecambe that we don't know enough about. Yeah, I, I was. And so yeah, I met his grandson um, as part of this, which was great because it. it gave me Did more, more of an insight. of his granddad? Yeah. Actually, Vern lived with his family, the grandson's family, uh, for about 10 years in the 1960s. Uh, and so he had strong memories of, of Vern. And so that, that was great to get a bit of an insight into the family uh, and, and what Vern was like as a man. Um, but what, what really interested me was I wanted to show if you go out and play one of these courses now, what I wanted to describe basically was what was there originally, what Vern did, what might have changed since so that you can go out and play Cobram Baruga old now and understand, okay, this is 
not Vern. This was Vern. Okay. This was how the original routing went. This is what's changed in the interim. This hole's been kinked, you know, whatever. Um, because, well, I, I guess it's that's what interests me. It's probably not what interests everyone, but that's what I'd want to know if I went there and thought, what what can I ascribe to Vern and what what can't I? And that's that's really what my research was about, trying to dig down into uh, telling people about what was there, what wasn't. You're among friends here, so there's no need to talk about that. Uh, we too have the nerd sickness where that would be interesting to us. When you approached some of these courses to ask them about their, their history with the Morecambs, did any of them not have a clue that they had uh, that, that they had a Vern Morecambe course or a Mick Morecambe course? Yeah, yeah, that definitely happened. Um, and, it, yeah, it was a, there was – there's there weren't that many courses where I went and asked and talked to people and there were people that knew heaps about that history at all. There was one that sticks out actually at Loxton. I went to Loxton, so Riverland, South Australia. Surprises nobody that Loxton had no, no idea. Always, yeah. always taken They've the They've got a reputation for that. That's yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, Ian McInnes, who's at Loxton, an amazing guy, and he actually was – one of the ones that hosted Morecambe when he came to Loxton in like 63, I think it was, 63 or 64. So Ian took me around in his cart in, you know, when I played there and showed me every nook and cranny oh, of that wow. course, told me how the holes had changed. It's just phenomenal. But that was very much the exception. You know, it didn't usually happen like that. And you know, he was telling me anecdotes from like, oh, when we stood on this tee, Vern told me this. It's like, Ian, this is, it's gold. <laughs> this, is, this is absolute gold for me. You, but that was, you know, that was one out of 90. The rest were much harder. Yeah, that's a lovely direct line because often we don't have that direct line, do we, when we talk the, about no, the Rosses and the Tillinghouse ship? The great span or something when, you know, generations pass on just by the barest of margins from some, you know, grandparent to a grandchild or some some piece of information is passed along. Yeah. And you get a lot in America, you get recounting stories of, of uh, the Civil War. And uh, it's just now that some of those things are sort of petering out, but you get these amazing connections throughout history. Lines that, that and, go uh, through them. Do I, was we- really, I was really conscious of that because yeah. – Scarth wrote his book in 2000 and even looking back to that that's 20 years ago yeah, and true. much more connected to potentially you know 70 80 year old members at these clubs for me it was right on the edge yeah mm. and thankfully you've sort of captured that do we know much of the mechanics of how Morecambe worked you said he'd leave on a Friday night he'd come home on a Sunday night what did he do in between did he draw sketches did he send paperwork then back uh, did he stake out courses uh, was I imagine most of his work were greenfield sites but did he ever do sort of renovation slash restoration do we have any of his hand drawings do we know if he was an artist like many of the architects we know today are fantastic drawers what do we know about that sort of thing actually there's some evidence that he drew some of the royal melbourne west stuff because Mackenzie wasn't much of an artist often didn't always do his own sketches um so yeah yeah Vern definitely drew we've got i've got quite a few of his original green sketches and layout drawings um we know a fair bit about what he did day to day on those weekends. So he'd get out there, often not so much greenfield sites. There's a few of the courses that come to mind, like Lee and Gather and Haywood, were densely forested. Anglesey as well, actually. So there's reports of just bashing through scrub. Uh, Spring Valley, too, they used big cider poles because the scrub was so thick. Like you'd hammer in a um, a stake, but no one could not see it because it. <laughs> it was so dense. So they'd have these massive poles sticking up above the, the above the low scrub, at least. Um, but yeah, that was that was the the strategy. He'd often get a topo map first and look at the contours. And he's pretty good at so Blackwood in South Australia, just in the Adelaide Hills, a good example of one that he designed basically just off the off the topographical map that they sent him when he was back in Melbourne, and then got to the course a little bit later and laid out the holes properly. Uh, but, yeah, often it was bush bashing for maybe the Saturday. They'd head back to the pub Saturday night. He'd draw out the layout, check a few things on the Sunday, jump on the train home, send them something in terms of, you know, a proper layout drawing, green sketches, usually maybe a four- or five-page letter on how they should plant the grass, green-keeping stuff as well as design, and then – that was it. That was Send that. off the package. Job done. Best of luck, people. Hope you build something <laughs> that's uh, that's, that's around for someone to write a book. Yeah, to about write a book about. That's right. Years time. That's exactly right. 
Adrian, it strikes me while we talk that there, there will be out there in the golf community, uh, youngsters and people, members of these golf clubs, have no idea of the connection to Morecambe, but who will have sparked in them an interest, as Toby has. Why is that hole better than that in this hole? Yeah. Better than that. This unsung legacy of people like Morecambe, mm. it's quite remarkable, isn't it? Yeah, that's, that is the real connection that the architect has with the mm. golfer over time, isn't it? Um, and, uh, yeah, I think everybody remembers the first time they've identified a, a hole which is has some architectural merit. It's different. What, it's something different. different. Yeah. And it, and what what creates a massive connection in a golfer's head, I think, is later on if somebody goes, oh, yeah, that hole, yeah, that's, that's, that's famous for that's being great. That's a Morecambe great. or a yeah. <laughs> And right. so the first time a golfer works that out for yeah. themselves, that, oh, yeah, there, there's something special about that hole. I, I'm, I could see what's going on there. The, the, I think that makes a special, sparks something special in a golfer's head. And, uh, yeah, the, it, it happens at any go- any old golf course. Yeah, well, or, every golf course, doesn't it? Every golf course has something special, yeah. um, even even ones that are just laid out by some council worker. It's, <laughs> you, you, you find something amazing in, in every golf course. Did any of that resonate with you as you were going around, uh, Toby? Did you come across people at these courses who would sort of say, oh, this is our best hole, but have no idea that there was a Morecambe connection? Or did that sort of thing happen for you? Because it's kind of important for the game, isn't it? I know not everybody's interested in architecture, but I think it's probably the most important element of the game because it's what makes the game interesting. Flat paddocks with 18 holes in the ground aren't interesting. Well-designed golf courses are, and that's what stimulates more than just the sporting aspect of golf, which is hitting the ball. It's what makes you think. It's what makes people write. It's what makes people produce podcasts and really sort of take to the game. Did you get any sense of that from people who might not have known Morecambe, but his work was having an impact? Uh, I think it's everyone loves a good or any golfer loves a good golf hall and they know what they love so they might say they're not interested in architecture but actually they are they just don't know what to call it <laughs> and and one of one of my favorite architectural devices is why Royal Melbourne West I think fundamentally is why it's so good I mean sure the greens are amazing the shaping's amazing but it's that opposite sided bunker uh, fairway to green where Every step away from the fairway bunker you hit it makes the approach shot 1% harder. And so if you keep stepping away and you go to the fully safe side of the fairway, the approach is just really difficult. If you get it one step away from that fairway bunker, the approach is straight down the line. And Vern certainly understood that classic hole. You know, the second at Spring Valley is a great example of that where it's just pretty simple fairway bunkered one side, pretty simple green bunkered the other side, but the naturalness of the shaping and the slight hollow in the sort of front left of the green, which falls away, just makes it, you know, it's just a compelling strategic hole. And I, you know, I think anyone that played the second at Spring Valley would just say, oh, what a fantastic hole, even if they say, I've got no interest in architecture at all. Which many do. It's an intricate simplicity, isn't it, Adrian? Mm-hmm. It really is simple when you lay it bare, mm-hmm. but done well. The sixth at Royal Melbourne West is just the most fascinating hole, which you can sit and ruminate on for hours in your own mind yeah. if you want to. Which I've done. It's a very straightforward <laughs> yeah, hole, really. Just that playing the hole in reverse and thinking about the delayed penalty um, is uh, just it's the fundamentals of golf course architecture or of strategic architecture, at least. Um, and I think the fascinating thing about that, about the sixth and that patch of land, is if you imagine there's no holes there, like your Vern and your Mackenzie, and you're walking with Mick over oh, yeah. that site. Uh, that was the that was the problem. That rise, that quite steep hill. How are we going to get holes over here? And what Mackenzie did was build four, five, and six, like possibly the best <laughs> trio <laughs> of holes, holes anywhere in the world. Well, I reckon most architects would have been like, oh, we've got to avoid that hill because that's the only trouble part of the property. This is a nice place for golf, but we've got to get around that somehow. And he just went four, five, six, done. Amazing sequence, yeah. Except the fifth is just a way of getting from the, the fourth f- green to the <laughs> sixth <laughs> to the sixth according to Mike Clayton. Places so. said more than once. Yeah. Of course, luckily you come down off that high with the very ordinary seventh at Royal <laughs> West, Toby, so it's all okay. This is not really so much a question sort of related to the book as such, but that ability, that skill, what you've laid out there, is that innate? Do some people just have it? Is it like artistic creativity or, or can it be learned? Yeah, I don't know if anything's innate. I, I 
I think it can be learned. And I think Vern probably just learned it from a very young age because he was surrounded with, well, he was a very good golfer too. So he played a lot of courses, but his dad was there and he met Mackenzie and he was just lucky to be in the right place at the right time. And certainly clubs that he went to commented how they were surprised that he could just sum up a piece of land, even if it was, you know, densely timbered um, in a day and get a workable routing that still exists to this day that hasn't been changed because it doesn't go into the sun, it doesn't have boundary issues, all the things that the sort of boring practical aspects that you've got to nail when you're a designer. Um, he just seemed to be very much on top of and sometimes even yeah just from a map he'd have a very good idea of where, where he was going to go early it, it somehow takes some sort of massive ego i think at some level to be a golf course architect oh, good Lord. to be the biggest canvas in the world to be it? trusted with a piece of land and you really shouldn't be allowed to lay out a golf course <laughs> until you've laid out 50 golf courses <laughs> right. is, is the way i think about it because you know, it, it's just such a huge responsibility, and especially for the routing, you only really get one shot at it. That's right, yeah. You might be able to make some minor adjustments, but you, how do you know you're getting the best out of the golf course? It just takes some bravado or stupidity or something to sort of forge ahead. To, to fill you in, Toby, Adrian and I played St Andrews Beach, I think it was last year, and from 15th or 16th hole, I think you can look across to where the second course was going to be at St. Yeah. Andrews Beach. There might have been a couple mm. of stakes in the ground. Yeah. 16th. And I remember just catching Adrian standing pensively looking at this field. <laughs> just and intimidated. Then he, and he said to me, how do they do it? I wouldn't have the courage to even begin to think about laying out a golf course over there because the only outcome is that I would bugger it up. Yeah. And well, <laughs> and particularly on land that That's good. exactly right. right. <laughs> That's right. The pressure would be enormous. But then ramp that up to some of these country courses where it's just covered in undergrowth. Like, I've, I've done the same thing at, at Newcastle Golf Club. We just look out into the bush and it's just thick, dense scrub. How would I And you can't get a sense of what the land's doing under all that scrub, even if I don't, I don't care about your topo maps and everything. <laughs> <laughs> There's, at some point, you've got to start cutting down trees and, and clearing, uh, clearing all that stuff and you get it wrong and you've car- carved out a, yeah. a rubbish corridor. Yeah, I think Adrian's right about that. Ego thing that doesn't necessarily have to present itself as cockiness and un- and unpleasant. You can have an ego without being that way. You can have an ego and be that way. Is there any sense of Morecambe's belief in himself? I think he was very sure of himself. Yeah, in that in those terms, and I think you're right, Adrian. I think you'd have to be like there's a million options, and you choose one and hope that it's good enough. Uh, but Fern didn't seem to be so. Um, yeah, he maybe because he'd done so many, he was just like, okay, this is what I do and I'm the professional and here you go. But I, I agree, you'd have to be very self-assured. Uh, the one thing I would say is that there's there are a surprising number of constraints. And when you look at Vern's writing, you realise that there's actually not that many options. Like once you've got clubhouse site, you know the shape of the property. If you want two loops of nine that come back, even just those things, and there's way more constraints than that, but even just those things hem you in pretty early yep. on to – It's like a Sudoku, which has a lot of a squares already whatever. filled out. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Interesting, fantastic stuff. Toby, it's been fabulous to talk to you. And as I said, I, I started not knowing enough about Vern Morecambe. I still don't know enough about Vern Morecambe, but there's a book coming out, so that's, uh, that's exciting for us. Where can we get it? When can we get it? What's it called? So it's called, at the moment, it's not quite finalised, but its working title is The Golf Courses of Vern Morecambe. Nice and simple. You didn't think, uh, gr- feel, feel the Vern? That didn't, didn't grab you? Oh, no. Deep, deep feel burn. the Vern? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You've got to, you've I got to it. I you want to. <laughs> I should have talked to you earlier in the uh, – in the. Um, and Graham Ryan's publishing it, so it'll be available at his uh, website – which is uh, ryanpub.com.au. And hopefully, uh, so the text's finalised. We're just working on the layout at the moment, but hopefully in the next few months, certainly this year, uh, it'll be available. And if you're on Twitter, um, look up at Morecambe Courses too because I'll be telling people when it's out and where to find it uh, no, through Twitter it as well. It was through your Twitter account. So, well, whether, And by the way, just a shout-out to Graham Ryan and Ryan Publishing, publishing this sort of stuff in 50 and 100 years this becomes more and more important with each passing year it takes some courage 
I spoke with Paul Daly some time ago about his Planet Golf series, um, which has been fantastic. But there's not a lot of money in publishing this sort of stuff. It really is. It's it, it's you know it's not an act of great altruism, but it takes some courage and full marks to the likes of Graham Ryan and, and Ryan Publishing for taking on a project like this because it's really important and grows more important with each passing year. Toby, uh, Toby's not. Going to be the next J.K. Rowling from this publication? Toby, were you likely to be the next J.K. Rowling, do you think? Uh, at this point, highly unlikely. I've okay. not seen I'm the text, say. so who right. knows? <laughs> it's a brilliant book, but I understand it's quite niche. Yeah. Were you surprised uh, how long the whole process takes? A bit like a golf course, I think. Oh, a, a book is a much bigger undertaking than most of us consider when we read one. We play a golf course and think, oh, well, that was okay, but there's an awful lot goes into it, isn't there? And. I mean, my wife would tell you this project was just an excuse to play lots of golf. So just the fact that I wanted to get to all of these courses and research it and I have a job and a family and it's like, it didn't surprise me that it took four years. It's about what I expected. Well, as we discovered when we had Tom Coyne on the podcast some time ago, what you really stumbled onto there is the world's greatest tax write-off. Mm-hmm. Well, yep. that's- Go play golf and claim the whole thing. Because at the end of it, you produce, you're working for yep. your money if you produce a book. Next is the golf courses of Dan Souter and then the golf courses of Eric Appley and, <laughs> and uh, the golf courses of Ross Watson. Yeah, there you go. Oh, oh, there's too much editing now. I'm leaving that first bit in uh, since before that. Oh, well, congratulations. It really is a, an achievement to write a book. I do a column each week and that is about enough for me. I can't cope with much more than about 500 words. So full respect for, uh, for putting out a book and congratulations on picking the topic and thank you for taking some time to fill us in a bit today about uh, Vern Morgan. It's been great to chat. It has. Thanks for having me. No, not at all. And we'll probably have you back when the book comes out. I'd like to have a read of it and then we'll pick out some snippets and uh, maybe get you back to talk about it. But it's uh, been great to chat to Toby. been great to chat to you too, Adrian. Thank you. Yeah, for thanks, Ron. Yeah, pleasure. As always, that's episode 36 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Now a part of history. Perhaps one day somebody will write a book on the podcasts of Rod Murray and Adrian Logue. Indeed. Feel the rod. Oh, no, rodcasting. That's what they're Rodcasting. It seems unlikely, but you never know. I hope you've enjoyed listening as much as we've enjoyed talking. We'll be back to do it. Adrian is as embarrassed as he should be. I've lost it over Feel the Rod. (laughs) Feel the Vern. We'll be back next week to do it all again. Here on Good Good.